Welcome to Making Footprints, Not Blueprints, a regular podcast about matters philosophical and religious. My name is Andrew James Brown, and despite being myself an atheistically inclined free thinker, I'm also the minister to the Unitarian Church in the city of Cambridge, UK. The title of this podcast is borrowed from the philosopher Herbert Fingeret, who, in his book, The Self in Transformation, offered us studies that were outcomes rather than realised objectives, which were offered to the reader as an encouragement to make intellectual footprints, not blueprints. This podcast tries to proceed in a similar fashion and takes seriously an insight of the poet A.R. Ammons, who felt that true human freedom only comes when we have understood that full scope always eludes our grasp, that there is no finality of vision, that we have perceived nothing completely, and that, therefore, and thankfully, tomorrow a new walk is a new walk. Welcome to this week's New Walk. The Freedom to Be Tomorrow What We Are Not Today, Parts 3 and 4, Becoming Archaeologists of Mourning and Men and Women Without a Position. Part 3, Becoming Archaeologists of Mourning. And remember that this is mourning as in morning and afternoon, rather than mourning in the sense of expressing sorrow when someone dies. In his short essay of 1952 called present is prologue, the poet Charles Olson suggested that we need to come to see that the past is for us not quite what we usually think it is. To the extent that we have access to the past, the past is in fact something present to us. And it is this past as present that is the prologue of our unfolding creative life. To borrow a term from Henry David Thoreau, one that Olson doesn't use, it is to think of this past as present as being for us a kind of perpetual mourning. To help us better to understand this idea, let's firstly hear Thoreau's own words about in what he thought it consists. Quote, All memorable events, I should say, transpire in morning time and in a morning atmosphere. The Vedas say all intelligence is awake with the morning. Poetry and art, and the fairest and most memorable of the actions of men, date from such an hour. All poets and heroes, like Memnon, are the children of Aurora, and emit their music at sunrise. To him whose elastic and vigorous thought keeps pace with the sun, the day is a perpetual morning. It matters not what the clocks say or the attitudes and labours of men. Morning is when I am awake and there is a dawn in me. Moral reform is the effort to throw off sleep. Unquote. With Thoreau's metaphor in mind, let's return to Olson. For Olson, the past is available to us in only two living ways – and it's important to realise that both ways are available to us only in the present, in this perpetual morning. 
Keeping in mind Olsen's image of the archaeologist on this perpetual mourning, it is into the soil of the past as present that he is encouraging us to do our digging. None of this is, of course, to deny that something we have traditionally called the past and or history has a meaningful reality. But it is to acknowledge the existential truth that for each of us, everything we call, identify and have available to us as the past, as history, is something which we are always already carrying with us right now, in the present, on this perpetual morning. So, as I've just indicated, Olson suggests that the past is available to us in two living ways. He calls the first available past our own history. And he notes that, quote, the work of each of us is to find out the true lineament of ourselves by facing up to the primal features of these founders who lie buried in us, unquote. The point he's making here is that his dead parents, and by extension all the past people, things, ideas and events that are our founders, those things which have made us who we are, all these are only available to us in the perpetual morning of the here and now, buried in the soil of our own present personal and cultural memories. It is into this present ground, earth, or perpetual mourning into which we, as archaeologists of mourning, are to dig. The second available past is, according to Olson, not our own. It is a somewhat elusive past, for which Olson thinks we in the West, unlike those in the East, don't yet have a vocabulary. He invokes it firstly by saying it is the mythological but he immediately says that this is too soft a way of putting it. He then suggests the following, quote, What I mean is that foundling which lies as surely in the phenomenological raging apart as these queer parents rage in us. Unquote. I take Olsen here to be gesturing towards the powerful, natural, animating and raging fluxes and flows of matter-energy in constant motion that are buried within and simultaneously revealed in every aspect of our being. Like a foundling child, we have been gifted these fluxes and flows from who knows what parent, and by and through them every living and non-living thing is constantly being made and unmade in the perpetual morning of the present. I think it's important to point out here that we should hear Olsen using the word raging in the sense that a storm rages, and not in the sense that an angry or disappointed man or woman might rage. Olsen's raging apart is a natural phenomenon that is manifest in, for example, the seed becoming a flower or a tree in the caterpillar becoming a butterfly, or, like Olson, in the poet's desire to make a poem, poesis. It is a reminder that matter-energy is always effective in and of itself, and so never requires an external prime unmoved mover, such as the god of theism, to get things going. But why are we to dig into the soil in and of this perpetual morning? Well, Olsen tells us that the work of the morning, quote, 
is methodology, how to use oneself and on what, unquote. In other words, he is suggesting that it is only by digging in the soil that is this perpetual mourning that we can genuinely come, not only to be the kinds of beings we might most fully be, but also to understand what it means to be that kind of being. This, Olson the poet tells us, is his profession, and it is why he proclaims himself an archaeologist of mourning. Olson thought archaeologists of mourning were the type of people always getting on with it, digging deep into the present soil of ourselves and the world, now, in this instant, with no drag, and ourselves as the only reader and mover of the instant, freed from all restrictive theories and creeds. Olson felt that the work and dogmas of such a free mourning way of being in the world were threefold. Although, as free spirits, we might not be overly fond of the word dogma, it's important to understand that Olson is using it to express how strongly he thinks we need to hold on to them. They might, perhaps, better be described not as dogmas, but as necessary know-how. The first work and dogma, or necessary know-how, is, quote, how by form to get the content instant, unquote. By this Olson means he wants us to create things where the form they take perfectly and immediately expresses the content, where our poetry, music, acts of social justice and worship are the fullest possible expressions of ourselves and not merely inauthentic, arty or moralistic clothing. The second work and dogma, or necessary know-how, is, quote, what any of us are by the work on ourselves, how to make ourselves fit instruments for use, how we augment the given, what used to be called our fate, unquote. Here I take it that Olsen is tapping into a sacred energy that helps us not to succumb to despair and inaction in the face of deeply challenging, contingent events. Olsen sees clearly that we can always augment that which we are given. The third work and dogma, or necessary know-how, is to assert that, quote, there is no such thing as duality, either of the body and the soul, or of the world and I, that the fact in the human universe is the discharge of the many, the multiple, by the one, yourself done right, whatever you are, in whatever job. Unquote. Olson goes on to say that this helps us see that, quote, all hierarchies like dualities are dead ducks. Unquote. Here I take it that he's tapping into a second sacred energy that is able to challenge our dangerous tendency to hubris, which always threatens to make us believe we are individual, independent creatures wholly in control of our existence and unfolding life. But let us be clear, like all free-spirited archaeologists of mourning, or indeed archaeologists of any kind, we can never be absolutely sure beforehand precisely what, if anything, we are going to bring to light that is both old and new from the soil into which we must dig. 
all we can and need be assured of is that, to paraphrase a well-known hymn, in the perpetual morning there is always already more light and truth that can break forth from the past. Light and truth that is both old and new. Part 4. Becoming men and women without a position. So, to conclude, what do I think is the result of becoming a free spirit who is also an archaeologist of mourning? Well, I have found that for me at least, it has meant that I have been able to become what the alas little known 20th century American philosopher Paul Wienpahl called a man or woman without a position. Before unfolding in a little more detail what I think this means, let's hear Wienpahl's own elusive words on the matter. Quote, As I see it, the point is not to identify reality with anything except itself. Tautologies are, after all, true. If you wish to persist by asking what reality is, that is, what is really, the answer is that it is what you experience it to be. Reality is as you see, hear, feel, taste and smell it, and as you live it. And it is a multifarious thing. To see this is to be a man without a position. To get out of the mind and into the world, to get beyond language and to the things, is to cease to be an idealist or a pragmatist, or an existentialist, or a Christian. I am a man without a position. I do not have the philosophic position that there are no positions or theories or standpoints. There obviously are. I am not a sceptic or an agnostic or an atheist. I am simply a man without a position. And this should open the door to detachment. Unquote. With Wienpahl's words in mind, let's now imagine ourselves in the perpetual morning, as a free spirit archaeologist of morning, about to begin to dig into the soil of the past as present. The first thing to observe, as I noted earlier, is that of necessity one simply cannot know exactly what one is going to find as one begins to dig, nor indeed if on this or that particular day of digging one will find or notice anything of interest at all. One must simply start to dig and see what emerges from the soil and in what this process will fully consist can never be fully worked out beforehand. To be sure, one can bring certain pre-existing ideas, perspectives, methods and tools to the initial breaking of the ground, but they are there simply to help us to begin to dig, which in turn may well reveal something that requires new ideas, methods, perspectives and tools if it's to be excavated and interpreted as well and as fully as is possible. The actual experience of being right there with the close and closest things, as one actually digs into reality, is what drives everything here. As one proceeds, one must use all one's senses, because reality is always as you see, hear, feel, taste and smell it, and as you live it. And these senses are there to help provide as many perspectives as is possible to uncover and interpret what is truly there, even as one must remain acutely aware 
that full scope always eludes our grasp, that there is no finality of vision, that we've perceived nothing completely, and that tomorrow, like a new walk, a new dig is always a new dig. As Wienpahl says, the point is not to identify reality with anything except itself. However, we need to remain fully aware that reality is a multifarious thing, and it is to see this, truly to see this, that is to be a man or woman without a position. The free spirit archaeologist of mourning without a position is always seeking to get out of the mind and into the world, to get beyond language and to the things. And when one is doing this well, one ceases to be an idealist, a pragmatist, an existentialist, a Christian, a sceptic, an agnostic or an atheist. Instead, one becomes a man or a woman without a position, someone who is not bringing to bear upon reality a ready-made, fixed blueprint, but someone who, through a process of disciplined attentiveness to, and mindfulness of things, is able to get the content of themselves instant, with no drag, and so able to remain as fully open as possible to what is actually intraactively emerging as one digs into the soil of the past as present on this perpetual morning. This is the kind of detachment which, as a man without a position, Wienpahl sought. This task, done well, is precisely what guarantees our freedom to be tomorrow what we are not today. To return to part one of this three-part podcast, the free spirit archaeologist of mourning without a position is someone who, in the light of the perpetual mourning, can see clearly that the past is not something which is finished and which fixes us and holds us back, something completely done and dusted. Instead, they can see that within the past there are always already undischarged energies and futures that can be released to the present and which can help us live better, fuller and more creative lives than we did before. Freer lives. But there is one more thing to say at this point. The phrase, a man or a woman without a position, is easily misunderstood by many people. It is often taken to mean that such a person is without direction and therefore incapable of getting anything done or saying anything substantive or truly meaningful. However, we need to be aware that there is a real difference between being someone without a position and being someone without a direction. It's important to see that to live in the world without a fixed position is in fact a prerequisite of being able truly to follow the direction of reality as it is actually unfolding and then of being truly able to augment the given. To switch briefly to a surfing metaphor, it is only the man or woman without a position who is able to surf the crest of the ever-moving unfolding wave of reality. In one sense, we may say that the surfer has chosen to adopt a certain kind of position on this or that particular surfboard, but in the sense Vimpal and I are using it, their metastable position on this or that surfboard is one that allows them better to approach and live fully as possible in the position of no position. In 
In other words, the surfboard is acting as their door to detachment, which allows them to have a direction that genuinely accords with the reality of the wave's actual unfolding, which of course includes the unfolding life of this surfer interacting with the unfolding of the wave. Again, this is to claim the freedom to augment the given. Like surfers, the man or woman without a position is able to surf the constantly unfolding crest of the perpetual morning. This is what Wienpal means when he talks of getting out of the mind and into the world, of getting beyond language and to the things. Now, like many of you, I am neither a surfer nor a conventional archaeologist, but I am a photographer, or at least I aspire to be a photographer. In the age of the smartphone, almost everyone is now a photographer, so let me place before you another way of understanding what it is to be a man or woman without a position that might connect with more people more readily. I always try to pick up my camera and go out into the world without a ready-made, fully worked-out blueprint, theory or plan about how, when or where to take a photograph. In this sense, what the surfboard is to the surfer, the camera is to me the photographer. In doing this, I'm attempting to keep myself open to whatever whooshes up or shines before me, whether that is in the form of an obvious subject, view or a simple passing play of sunlight and shadow. When something does whoosh up or shine before me, I stop and take a photograph. To do this, I must, of course, temporarily take a position, not only by standing still in this or that place, but also by taking a position with regard to the camera settings I'm going to use, the f-stop, the shutter speed, film speed, and whether to shoot in black and white or colour. Now, were I never to take this or that position with regard to all these things, I would never be able to take any photo, good or bad. However, it is vitally important that, having taken a photograph, I never become wholly wedded to this or that particular position, subject, view, passing play of sunlight or shadow, or this or that set of settings. Instead, I must move on, intraactively, on the crest of the unfolding world to attain another perspective, and so allow something else to whoosh up and shine before me, which calls me to shoot. Click. It is in this sense that I understand what it is to become a man or a woman without a position, a free-spirit archaeologist of mourning who is truly able to approach, see, reveal and appropriately interpret the close and closest things by entering fully into the constant dance of life. It has long struck me that taken together all the foregoing offers the world an example of what, in his famous essay called Walking, Henry David Thoreau called the Newer Testament, the gospel according to this moment. It's the only gospel I know of that helps us truly to claim the freedom to be tomorrow what we are not today. And because of this, in my work as a rather unconventional minister of religion, it is the only gospel that I am able to live by and proclaim with a genuinely clean heart and full belief. In this spirit of freedom, I commend it to you for further thought and reflection. 
And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Making Footprints, Not Blueprints podcast. So, farewell for now, and remember, tomorrow a new walk is a new walk. See you on the path. Thank you.